The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, I'm Adam, like Vince said. Uh, I do a lot of the sound, so mostly just see me in that booth uh, all the time, and that's what I usually do around here. But um, it is kind of nice to get up here and bring God's word and, and talk about what the Lord's been doing in my heart over the past year here. So um, let's do a quick prayer real quick. Uh, Dear Holy Father, thank you for this past year, for this season of my life that's just been one of renewal, uh, one of just finding your, your word and finding the glory of your word and making it more true in my heart. I pray that right now you just give me the ability to have the right words, the right actions, the right emotions come through so that people understand and get a glimpse of the glory that I've been seeing over this past year. your name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, I'm going to be talking today about Elijah. So if you have a Bible, 1 Kings 17, that's where we're starting. We're going to go all the way through 2 Kings 2 or 3. So we're just going to start at verse 1, and we're just going to read the entire thing. So it's not going to take too long as we go through the process here. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to read that many verses, um, <clears throat> or not make you all read that many verses. But um, <laughs> it, it, it's a story today that really has been impacting me. Uh, when I think about the past year of my life, um, I mean, I, got, I just celebrated my one-year wedding anniversary with my amazing wife, Samantha. Yeah. Um, so God's really just been opening up and changing a lot of things in my life and growing. And then when I think more about what in the word in particular it is, um, it's been like an Old Testament renewal for me. Um, reading and enjoying the stories in the histories of our faith, um, and even deeper, that leads to an understanding of the Old Testament where you just kind of see, as Vince always says, like the red line of the gospel all throughout the Bible. Now, there's a really good book that came out this year uh, by one of my favorite authors, Hamilton, James Hamilton, and it's about typology. And what they do is he just goes through and he says, this is how this person is a prototype for what Jesus is. And this is how this person is a prototype for what Jesus is. And I've been reading and just working with that and then dealing with Elijah, and I just want to take a moment and kind of break down how the Lord's been dealing with me associated with that stuff. So we're going to take a look at Elijah. Elijah appears out of nowhere in 1 Kings 17. It's at the period after David and Solomon. The kingdoms have already split into two. You have Israel and Judah. It's safe to say that they're not doing well at this time. By that I mean they were in serious rebellion to the Lord. 1 Kings 16.30-33 to 33 puts it this way. But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Okay. Then, as if, as if following the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, were not enough, he married Jezebel, served Baal, and bowed worship to him. He set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal, and he, he had built in Samaria. Ahab had made an Asherah pole. 
Ahab did more to anger the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel than were before him. So when I say bad guy, bad guy, also obligatory joke that everyone makes when you read about a name in the Bible, you know, research the kids' names before you pick them out. So maybe not Ahab, just pass over that one. I feel like you got to make that joke. Um, But yeah, you know, just a really bad guy not doing what the Lord says, so much so that he's following other gods as he's supposed to be leading God's people towards him. It's kind of reminiscent of what Solomon said, if you ask for a king, this is what the king's going to do to you. And it's God's word just coming through. But anyways, back to the story of Elijah. He comes into the story with a force, okay? There had not been a prophet calling out God's people in quite a while. And this is how he comes into the narrative. It's, it's 1 Kings 17, 1 to 7. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite from Gilead settlers, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Then the word of the Lord came to him, leave here, turn eastward and hide at the Wadith Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide, you for, to provide for you there. So he proceeded to do what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived at the wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening. He would drink from the wadi. After a while, the wadi dried up because there had been no rain in the land. You see, this goes on for three and a half years. But there needs to be some context around this one. Baal, the God that Ahab is currently worshiping, is the God who was supposed to bring fertility to the land. The Lord simply doesn't like that someone else is taking his credit. God is the God of provision. Meanwhile, this kind of knucklehead of a king is living up to all that Solomon had said would happen if he was the ruler instead of God. But before God deals with the king, the ruler on top, he wants to deal with his people and primarily through the false god that he's worshiping in their place. Okay? So look into Elijah, look into where Elijah goes in the story, right? The Wadi Cherith. So let's draw a mental picture of the place where God sends Elijah. All right? So this is a cloud participation time. Who here has seen Black Panther? Or, or knows what Wakanda is. Yeah? All right. Okay, good. All right, so everybody knows what that is. You think of a pristine oasis, right? Shield of protection coming down. Obviously, people are going to be looking for this guy. He can't turn the water back on without him. So God's hiding him, and you just got this, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a dude with a gun for an arm there too. It could be happening. Um, so you have that stand around there, and then you have God's, you know, DoorDash, Bird dash, raven dash, I know, kind of like repeating of Exodus where food gets flown into him every morning and he's just, you know, sitting there relaxed, eating food that is literally dropped off to him Why nobody can find him. So everybody kind of got that picture, right? Like, you got that? Okay, now just get rid of it because the wadi is an inhospitable place that God literally had to bring him food or he would starve. God didn't send him to some pristine oasis to just pray continually that there will be no rain on the earth. Instead, he said, go to this place that the only way you're going to survive is if I provide for you. 
and while you're there, also keep praying, that water doesn't come. You see, God had, oh, there we go. Elijah is dealing, and I think it's really important. This is kind of one of the things that hit me. Elijah's dealing with the punishment for not serving God as well as help bringing forth that punishment. He's suffering from lack of food that's going to come from a drought. He's suffering from the water starting to dry up. He's suffering with the people because the people have abandoned God. And he's, he's part of that suffering, but God's coming along in that time of suffering for the people saying, I know this is a punishment that everyone deserves, but I'm going to give you this, this grace and you're following me and you're, you're praying and you're doing these things. So I'm, I'm going to provide for you to help pull you through this. Okay? So we're starting to see kind of some correlations here if we're looking at maybe the prototype. Showing up, small town, out of nowhere, I'm bringing God's word, here it comes, right? So we're starting to see some of these examples. So when the book runs, when the brook rather, (laughs) runs dry, we see the next part of God's provision to come. So in 1 Kings 17, 18 to 6, it says this. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Get up, go to Zarephath that belongs to Sidon and stay there. Look, I've commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up, went to Zarephath. When he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, please bring me a little cup of water and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a bit of oil in a jug. Just now, I am gathering a couple of sticks in order to go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we can eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make some for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman, then the woman, uh, there we go. Then the woman, Elijah and her household ate for many days. The flour jar did not become empty. And the oil jug did not run dry according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah. You see, we, we see God providing for Elijah as he's suffering with the people by saying, go and this woman who also needs my help and also needs my provision, go, she's gonna help provide for you. So he goes there and notice the widow didn't know, right? She didn't know that her oil jar and her flour jar were never going to run dry. She didn't know that baking the last little bit of bread based off the word of the man of God would bring actual physical salvation to her family. She didn't know that the faith, the action of hearing the word of God, doing the word of God, would bring about this saving grace in her life and her son's but she had to act on faith based off the word of God coming from Elijah, right? 
she believes the words of the man of God and is quite literally saved. So we look next, right? Next part in the story here. And we got 1 Kings 17, 17 to 24, okay? So this is the next part of the Elijah story. It says, after this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness got worse until he stopped breathing. He said to Elijah, man of God, what do you have against me? Have you called, I mean, have you come to call attention to my iniquity so that you put my son to death? But Elijah said to her, give me your son. So he took him in his arms, brought him upstairs to the upper room where he was staying, laid, on him, in, laid him in his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, my God, have you, brought, have you also brought tragedy on this widow I am staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched himself over the boy three times. He cried to the Lord, Lord, my God, please let this boy's life come to him again. So the Lord listened to Elijah and the boy's life came to him again. He lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upstairs room and into the house and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know you are a man of God and the Lord's word in your mouth is true. So while the man of God is doing the work of the Lord, the people who are supporting him lose someone they love. Elijah prays to the Lord and the boy lives again. This causes the woman to believe that Elijah is the man of God. Now, there are many ways that this looks like the like of Jesus and the miracles that are going to be done through him, through his name and his disciples and everything, not to mention he also raises a widow's son. He also has provision of bread and breaking it out. And just like all the things that happen there three times, there's a lot of components where you can just see the thing there. But uh, taking a look here, um, the resurrection from the dead causes the woman to believe that the words, that the man's words are the word of God. So she already had been saved from death and starvation. Already. Her son dies. Faith, forget that. Like, I don't care if my jars are running dry. I don't got the son to feed. But there's a resurrecting, bringing back to life that shows, hey, you'll believe when you see the works that I'm doing. And I can conquer death. Starting to see the correlation here of how we're just following the storyline through, right? Okay? So um, what happens next is God calls Elijah to go to Ahab and have a conversation. The three years that it had not rained, like I said, Ahab looking for him right? Um, okay, how about this? Has anyone here ever had to have their water turned on or off at their house, right? You're just at the mercy of Norwood water. What are they going to show up, dig that hole, find it, and do the thing? I mean, how many times have we said, I could probably find a pole, shove it in there, and turn my water back on if you need to, right? Think of Ahab looking for the water guy, driving around your city. Hey, I need my water on, just driving around looking for him not able to find him for over three and a half years, right? Elijah makes himself known to one of Ahab's people. 
right? And in, 18, in 1 Kings 18 to 17, we see this. When Ahab saw, uh, sorry, so before we get there, um, the first guy who finds him, he's like, Elijah's like, hey, go tell Ahab I'm here. And he goes, no, you're, uh, that's not gonna work. Ahab will kill me if I go say I found Elijah and I don't bring you with me. You gotta come with me. And he goes, I won't leave, trust me, bring Ahab here. And then on that, he goes to get the guy because that's how hard they're looking for him. In 18, 70 and 19, we see this. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, the one ruining Israel? Ooh, someone didn't learn. He replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have because you have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Ahab had not learned his lesson. Most evil guy, most evil king up to this point in the Bible didn't learn his lesson. Surprise. But rather blames someone else for the punishment that he deserves. You see, in... (laughs) This doesn't go well. Um, We're coming up to the part which is probably the most well-known story of Elijah besides this very last story. Um, And that's in 1 Kings 18, 20 to 46. We're not gonna read that because that's a really, really long one. Uh, But it's one of the coolest stories in the Bible. If you haven't read it, I would recommend doing it all multiple times because it's just a fun read. Um, And also somebody had mentioned it this week in a story. So I was just laughing really hard when I saw that on social media saying, oh, we're gonna talk about that. Um, So here it is. Um, Elijah puts their God to the test, okay? They had built their altars and they torn down and just gotten rid of God's altar, right? So Elijah says, all right, we're gonna see whose God can bring fire. Build your altar, kill a bull, put it on there, right? And then he says, I'll even let you go first because I don't think your God's gonna do it and I don't want my God to do it. And then you'd be like, well, then my God can't do it because your God's already done it and it's just like a repeat thing. I'm gonna let you go first because I don't think you're gonna do it, right? So he lets them go forth first. They're chanting, dancing, praying, worshiping. They're getting knives, they're cutting themselves, bleeding, just doing, pouring every bit of themselves out. I mean, just think, I'm sitting here like Elijah watching everything they're doing. And it's just like, I don't know, like a rave dance worship party around an altar for the fire to just come down. And they're just killing and just hurting themselves and pouring themselves out for this God. And Elijah's just on the side and goes, maybe you should be a little louder because he's probably asleep, right? <laughs> like your, your alarm clock's not going off like, hey, um, maybe you should just keep going further and just, yeah, I don't think that cuts deep enough. Um, you know, he's, he's literally mocking them. He's mocking their God. And that's not what, 850 people dancing around a bull, cutting themselves, going crazy. And he's just over there by himself. Yeah, that ain't gonna work. Keep going. Now, quick side note here. He mocks their God and Elijah lives. Later on in 2 Kings, Elisha the prophet is walking up the street and people mock him and a bear comes from the woods and eats the people who mock him immediately. Who's the God who's gonna be mocked? Ooh, Okay, so we have a God who won't be mocked, and then we also have a God who says, go ahead and mock their God, I'll be fine. So all day, whole thing happens, right? Uh, And then finally, it's Elijah's turn. He goes, hey, it's my turn. You guys ain't gonna do it. So he goes over, and he gets the 12 stones that make the altar, like the 12 tribes of Israel. 
and he rebuilds the altar of the Lord. And he sacrifices the bull and he puts the bull on top. And then he goes, hey, out of you 850 people, uh, I need four jars of water. I don't know however many it takes for you to carry it, but just get it over here. Pour water on the altar. All right, do it again. Pour water on the altar. Do it again. Pour water on the altar. Well, 12 massive things. So now we just have a campfire with, you know, okay, picture your campfire after a rainstorm with your steak or whatever on top that you really want to cook. And Elijah just goes, God, light this fire. All the water's gone, fire's lit, bull's consumed. Sacrifice, success, right? That's the presence of the God that kind of comes in there. Then Elijah does something that we often don't see in storybook Bibles because they're not 100% kid-friendly for this following part, but it is the biblical truth. He looks at Israel, who immediately falls to the ground worship and says, all right, now that I got you worshiping God, get those 850 people, we're gonna go to the river and we're gonna kill them because we're not gonna let anybody spread false word about this God again. And he takes them all down to the river and slaughters them, okay? Then he goes to Ahab and he goes, I'm gonna turn the water back on. Prays seven times. Stands up, clouds are coming, he looks, at Air, he looks at Ahab and he goes, you better hop on your chariot and make it to the city because this is about to be a really bad rainstorm. And then somehow in some Holy Ghost sneaks and sandals, outruns a chariot and beats him to the city, right? Like he's just like, chariot's going and like, ooh, like I don't know what it is. Maybe it was like another path, probably in all likelihood, but I like to think of just like hard, I'm hauling butt right here on a chariot and someone just runs right past me through the faith of God. That's how I figure it, Okay. So this is probably the story of Elijah that most of us remember, right? And it's an amazing story about God's power. God gave his people a chance to repent by showing he's the one who brings provision. And he's the only real God to be worshiped. Ahab, no, doesn't change his mind. And he's still being controlled by his wife's religion, which is not the one of Israel. We next see Elijah get, we then see Elijah get another chance of provision from the Lord. And that comes after a prayer of exhaustion and failure, right? God answers him in a way that he wasn't expecting. See, Jezebel finds out that all her friends who she had just had a 450 person plate dinner with got killed by the river. And she goes to her husband and goes, I think you should kill that man. And he goes, I think I should kill that man. And then he goes to kill that man. Um, and then he's like, I'm not gonna be killed. And so he flees, right? So Elijah 19, three to 18, it says this. Then Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life, leaving the city God told him to go to. Um, when he came to Beersheba that belonged to Judah, he left his servant there, but he went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked and there was there at his head was a loaf of bread baking over hot stones and a jug of water. Pretty awesome. So he ate, drank, and page turner, lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord returned for a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat for the journey will be too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. 
Then, on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. He entered a cave there and spent the night. Suddenly, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I am, I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing as the mountains and was shattering the cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for the Lord God of armies, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone left. And they are looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, you are to anoint Hazel as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu as son of Nishi as king over Israel, and Elisha, son of Shephat, as, and from Abelioah, Okay, we'll go with that one. As prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So in this passage, we see that God is kind of recreating the history of Israel, Right? wandering through the wilderness by provision of God and ending up at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, God again appears to a man looking to help lead God's people while they are worshiping false gods. Moses dealing with a golden calf at the bottom of the mountain, Elijah dealing with Baal. But God had just performed miracles to show his power and they're not following him. God just did his work to prove it and it didn't change the minds of everyone. But God has a plan to save his people. We also see here that Elijah says, I'm alone, they're trying to kill me. Look, I'm the one who went out there and did the bull thing and fire came down. That was me using your words. Now they want to kill me, the only one left. And he goes, really? Because there's like 7,000 people that are left that haven't bowed and kissed the false God. So it's not just you. So why don't you go back and anoint three of those people that aren't you, who are going to complete the work that you want done, but you're not going to finish? Okay? So if you look to the next set of verses that we see Elijah, not, we see Elijah not doing what the Lord told him to do. Instead, he takes Elisha as his servant and doesn't anoint anyone as a king. 1 Kings 19, 19 to 21. Elijah left there and he found Elisha, son of Sephat, and he was plowing. Twelve teams of oxen were in front of him and he was the twelfth team. Elijah walked by him and threw his mantle over him. Elisha left the oxen, ran to follow Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. Go back, he replied, for what have I done to you? So he turned back from following, took the team of oxen and slaughtered them. 
And when the oxen's wooden yoke and plow, he cooked the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he left, followed Elijah, and served him. Pretty awesome story that you're calling someone out of a field to follow you and they follow you, but was that what Elijah was called to do? No. He wasn't called to say, hey, you're the next prophet, serve me. He was called to anoint someone. So from here, we see Elijah just like out of the story for a little while, okay? He shows back up to curse Ahab and his wife Jezebel in 1 Kings 21. He tells Ahab that his whole family is going to be wiped out. Ahab, in a stroke of just genuine humility and fear or whatever is there, is mortified of the fact that his family line is just going to be just destroyed. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and just weeps. And God says, well, he's been humbled now, so I won't kill him. I'll kill his family. His humility is going to save him, not his family, though. Then Elijah leaves. We see in 2 Kings 1, the prophecy coming true. Ahab's son, Isaiah, is sick in bed after falling out of a window. Don't know how you do that, but he fell out of a window. The Lord tells Elijah to intercept the messenger of Isaiah headed to the false prophets of Baal and tell them that their king will die. When they go back to tell the king the news, he finds out Elijah is the one who sends him. And he says, go and get Elijah, have him come to me because I just want to hear from his mouth that I'm going to die. He sends 50 men to go find Elijah, fire comes down from heaven, kills him. Sends another 50, fire comes from heaven, kills him. Sends another 50, the leader of those 50 goes, hey, please don't kill us. We just want you to talk to the king. And he goes, all right, I won't kill you. Then all 50 of them, including Elijah, goes back. He talks to the king and he says, yeah, you're going to die. And then leaves and the king dies. That's how that happens. All right, so uh, we're going to go to the last time we see Elijah now. So you see the story of this, I just really like this guy, but we're going to go to the last time we see Elijah, and this is in 2 Kings 2, okay? This is one of the coolest stories in the Bible, in my opinion. Um, The Bible as a whole is pretty awesome, right? We like all the stuff in it, and it's pretty awesome. We get saved, cool, but there's some parts where you just read it, and you're like, I hope there's like instant replay in heaven, because I would love to see this scene because it's just one of those things. Um, so it's 2 Kings 2, 1 to 11. It says this, the time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Okay. Elijah and Elisha were traveling from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord is sending me to Bethel. But Elisha replied, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down from Bethel. The sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said, do you know that the Lord will take your master from you today? He said, yes, I know, be quiet. Elijah said to them, and Elisha, stay here. The Lord is sending me to Jericho. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came up to Elisha and said, do you know that the Lord will take your master away from you today? And he said, yes, I know, be quiet. Elijah said to him, stay here. The Lord is sending me to the Jordan. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men from the sons of prophets came out and stood, observed them at the distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the water, which parted from right to left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do 
for you before I am taken from you. So Elisha answered, please let me inherit two shares of your spirit. Elijah replied, you have asked something difficult. If you see me taken from you, you will have it. If not, you won't. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two men. Then Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. As Elisha watched, he kept crying out, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Okay, so am I right? Like middle of this conversation right now? Chariot, comes right here and Vince just goes straight up, right? I'm pretty sure every one of us would be like, did we really just see that happening? Can we get the video replay? Something like this to happen. It's one of the coolest ways to leave the earth. It's one of the only two people in the Bible who didn't actually die. They went up to heaven in a different way. This guy's pretty cool. So um, there, there's many ways um, that this is important, but Elisha does something which is unique. He gets the double portion that is asked of him. Now, did him asking Elijah to be able to do miracles or I want the double portion of your spirit, did that have anything to do with Elisha getting that? I mean, probably because the mantle came down and that's the one he wore, but also God had already said, you're going to go be the one who finishes this. You're going to go bring about the rest of my destruction on these group of people. So Elisha was already destined for that, but he still had to be with the man of Elijah, still follow him, still learn from him, and be there with him when he goes up and then have faith that what he's asking of him when he's no longer with him is going to happen. Do we see some similarities there from what we're looking at with the Bible? So one of the coolest things, um, and I'll let go of that because, you know, he does 26 uh, miracles, Elisha does. The last one is one of the coolest ones. So I'm just going to do a quick read on that one. It says, then Elisha, this is 2 Kings 13, 20, 21. Then Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite soldiers used to come into the land in the spring, of, spring once a year. Once as the Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a raiding party. So they threw the man into Elisha's tomb. When he touched Elisha's bones, the man revived and stood up. One of the coolest miracles that your bones, let alone just be like, throw them on there and life comes back. It's the last miracle he does. It puts him at the actual doubling of what Elijah did, fulfilling what was going to happen there. So all that being said, this is the story in the life of Elijah. I have pointed out some things that have caused me to be loving the Old Testament stories of God's faith and his amazing power. As I read Old Testament stories, though, I like to see how they interact with other parts of the Bible. So let's do that for a little bit here, okay? Before so, quick recap. Elijah came in the storyline out of nowhere, wanting God's people to stop serving a false god by all. We have no water for three years in Israel. We see him raise a boy from the dead and after feeding that family with, by never-ending flour and oil. There is a showdown at the altar of the Lord in Baal, proving God's provision in killing the false prophets. We see him sustained by the Lord on multiple occasions, including a 40-day journey through the desert to Mount Sinai, where he gets a word from the Lord. He calls a man working in the field to follow him, does one final prophecy to Ahab, then does a retirement tour through the schools of the prophets, 
parts the Jordan River, taken up in a whirlwind, being surrounded by chariots and horses of fire. He also does not do what God wants him to do by anointing two people of kings of Israel and Elisha as his successor, but instead took him as his servant. So there are many places that Elijah is mentioned in the Bible outside of this section of scripture. I want to take a look at some of them really quickly here, okay? Oh, we're doing good, yeah. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, all right? After this book, silence between what God has said to his people in this. So, you know, we got all this stuff kind of happening right there. So let's go to Malachi 4, all right? Malachi 4 says this. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogance and everyone who commits wickedness will stubble, well, will become stubble. They, the, the coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them from the root or the branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from, a small, from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet from the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember instruction, remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statutes and the ordinance and the commands sent to him at Horeb for all of Israel. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord to come, that the Lord comes. The Lord will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their father eyes. Other, otherwise, I will not come and I will strike a curse on the land. So we see that again in the storyline, maybe it's like a reverse whirlwind, I don't know, but Elijah is apparently gonna come back to earth and do what he already did. Because Elijah goes and calls people to repent, turns off the water for three years and to start calling people back to the God, right? Well, before the Messiah that comes, Elijah's gonna come and pull people back and open up their hearts towards what's happening. So I know you're all thinking, wait a minute, who's that possibly gonna be? It's John the Baptist. Like, I'm just gonna make it be known. John the Baptist is the person. So John 1 is dealing with the ministry of John the Baptist and he is, as he's doing his ministry. When they come to ask him who he is, the first thing they ask him is he's the Messiah. The second thing, they, which he's clearly not, the second thing they ask him is, are you Elijah? I mean, if you look at the description, it's pretty similar. Like, there's a chance this guy could have actually been Elijah coming down. I mean, they didn't know the other part of the story of his birth and everything like that. So just coming up to him, they're like, well, Elijah looks like this and you look like that. That's pretty similar. So they are actually wondering, is this Elijah, right? John the Baptist says no. You see, they had been waiting for him to come. And when somebody is causing people's hearts to just turn to God at the effectiveness that John the Baptist is doing, they're saying, oh, this must be Elijah because we're told that this is coming before the Savior's coming. This is the expected event. This is the turn your lights on. This is happening event. Please tell me this is the Elijah coming, right? You, you, get, these, you get this type of thing coming. We are seeing that there is a type of what Elijah did, preparing people to turn to the Lord. Elijah did it. Malachi prophesied it would happen again, and John the Baptist was doing it. So the next place that I want to kind of point to here is in Matthew 17, 1 to 13. 
Now, this is a pretty common one that you might know of. It's called the transfiguration, all right? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His his clothes became white as snow. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you want, I will set up three shelters for you here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one there but Jesus alone. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, Do not tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, when they, when they, when do, sorry, when, why then do they say, the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and restoring everything, he replied. But I told you, Elijah's already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. See, John the Baptist was already dead at this point, or close to it. In the same, in the same way, the Son of God is going to suffer at their hands. This, then the disciples understood that he had spoke to them about John the Baptist. So Elijah and Moses, some, you know, like a hall pass from heaven, something, whatever it is, they come down and they talk to Jesus at the top of the mountain. These are two people in the Old Testament that died before the work that they were called to do was completed, but didn't come back to finish it. Right? foreshadowing that Jesus would have to die before the work that he's sent here to do would have to be done. So this is a conversation I would have loved to be about. We don't know what they're talking about right there. Again, probably one of those conversations where you're just like, can I just see what the three of you were talking about? Maybe Jesus is like, I get to actually finish it. You know, I don't know, but I imagine that would have been a conversation that was pretty fun. And one that I personally would want to listen to and also one that the disciples also wanted to be a part of because they said, hey, let's just build these guys some place to stay and then we can all chat. You know, they want to be in that presence because they realize the importance of what's just happened there. All right? So I want to go now to the last time that Elijah's kind of brought up in the Bible. Um, the last one we're going to be talking about today. Um, But before that, I want to kind of read you a quote by Dan Hayes. It says, New Testament connections to Elijah, however, extend beyond John the Baptist. Numerous similarities can be identified between the miracles Elijah does in 1 and 2 Kings and the miracles of Christ in the Gospels. Both Elijah and Christ multiply food. Both of them raise the son of a widow from the dead. In 1 Kings 17.24 After the incredible miracle, the widow says, Now I know that you are the man of God, and the word of Yahweh from your mouth is truth. Likewise, in response to Jesus' miraculous work and the raising of the widow's son from the dead, the crowd declares, A great prophet is amongst us. Some interpret these similarities as indicating that Elijah serves as a type of Christ and therefore foreshadows Christ in a typological manner. Others see the similarities in such a broader context. They point out the numerous numerous similarities between Jesus and the other prophets as well. 
The conclusion is that Jesus comes in the power and in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets in general, and that he is the ultimate prophet, combining the roles of king, priest, and prophet. You see, there's a freedom in knowing that the God we serve and his word. God has a plan for salvation from the beginning and was showing us his face and his power throughout the stories. And reading his word and connecting the dots gets us that deeper understanding. Okay, so now, coming to the last instance that I want to talk about when it comes to Elijah in the Bible, we got a man who comes out of nowhere in the storyline being at the transfiguration. He is so impactful that when someone... Oh, sorry, when someone comes back and has success calling people to the Lord, they think it's him, right? He got to go to heaven without dying, one of the two people in the world to do that. So this is Elijah, all right? Now, if everyone can, please turn in your Bibles to James 5, all right? This is the part where reading the Bible and following the story of Elijah and following the power of God in seeing how he works things out and how he says, I know back in the time of Ahab what John the Baptist is going to be doing and what that's going to mean for salvation. I know Jesus and what he's going to be doing and I'm showing you what's going to be happening through the prophets and I'm showing you. This is, all of that kind of comes through. And then now I just want to look at this last little bit here. So James 5 verses 13 to 19. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church that they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he commits sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from error of his ways will save the soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Did you catch it? Right? We see something here that's powerful and amazing. Something here that is something our church globally and locally needs today something we need to take to heart and start doing. So John Calvin says it this way. James argues Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. What? Does he infer that Elijah possessed some peculiar privilege and that we must have recourse with him to use it? By no means. He shows that perpetual efficacy of a pure and pious prayer 
that we may induce in like mind to pray. For the kindness and the readiness of God to hear others malignantly interpret it, if their example does not inspire us for stronger confidence in his providence, in his promise, since his declaration is not that he will incline his ear to one or two or a few individuals, but to all who call upon his name. You see, the last takeaway on top of being able to see the glory of God and planning out his own history and the history that's coming and knowing that he's working in everything, on top of that, I want us to know this. I want us to be a church that grasps that we serve a God who answers prayer. Prayer is a powerful weapon towards the works of the evil one. Elijah prayed when the people of the Lord went wayward. Elijah prayed when he was about to die from hunger. He led a life that God was working all around him. He caused Israel to start to turn their hearts from Baal to the Lord. He became a prototype for the one who prepares the hearts for the coming of the Lord. Also, as James says, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly. At this time, the church needs us to pray earnestly and expect the results that Elijah expected. Not that the rain will stop, but that the people will turn their hearts to the Lord. We serve a God who answers prayer and uses those who read his word, pray his word, and listen to him to do great and powerful things in his name. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for just the amazing history of your works and of your deeds that we get to see throughout Scripture. Thank you for the examples that we put to just confirm what your coming Son is going to do and just give all this validity that isn't needed but is just there and awesome when we get to see your plan of grace. And God, give us the power to realize that one of the two people in this entire world who went to heaven without dying was an ordinary man who had perpetual, earnest, effective prayer. And let us be those people who intentionally and continually read your word, pray your word, and cause people to come to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.